This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening. Um, my name is Severin Carell. I'm the Scotland correspondent for The Guardian. And we're here for the second in a series of debates that the Book Festival is putting on this year on the subject of rethinking the union. And this debate this evening is going to be looking at Scotland's role in the world were it to become independent, asking questions about whether an independent Scotland would either lose power and influence or whether it would actually gain in power, influence, status and prestige through being independent. Now, I presume you're aware of the, who the panellists are, but I'll introduce them anyway. On my left here is Tony Benn, who, as you'll remember and know, is one of uh, Britain's best-known Labour politicians. He was an MP for 50 years, uh, was a minister in two Labour governments. He was a Cabinet Secretary for Energy and for um, Industry, I believe, Postmaster General. And in the 1980s, he became something of a totemic figure for the left uh, of the Labour movement. He even has a political philosophy named after him, Benite. And as you'll also know, in most recent years, he's been a quite vocal critic of British foreign policy, particularly on the Iraq war. He's been the president for a decade of the Stop the War Coalition and is arguably one of you know, our most loved and respected uh, political figures from the 20th century. Now, over to, further to my left is Alan Smith, who is an SMP MEP for Scotland. He is a lawyer to trade. He has studied at, um, in, and, and, sorry, he's studied and worked in Germany, in Warsaw, India, and London. He's worked for a law firm. He's also worked for Richard Lockhead, who is the current um, Scottish Cabinet Secretary for the Environment, and has been an MEP for the last eight years. And to my right here is Dr. Nicola McEwen from Edinburgh University. Now, she is co-director of the Institute of Governance and a senior lecturer in politics at the university. And she specializes in regional and territorial politics and devolution, the politics of devolution within uh, larger states. And she's also managing editor of the journal Regional and Federal Studies and is the, uh, involved in the UK Energy Research Center project on community energy action called Engage Scotland. Now, there's, as many of us will know, a great deal of focus now on how Scotland would, its, how its role would change if it were to become independent about the kind of issues and debates that Scotland needs to have about its engagement with big institutions like NATO, the European Union, and with major pressing issues for Scotland in the future, particularly the position with Trident on the Clyde. Uh, there's a lot of debate inside the SNP at the moment about whether an independent Scotland would, under the SNP's proposals at least, join NATO. And if it did join NATO, where would that leave at the SNP's long-standing and absolutely quite central position of opposition to Trident on the Clyde? At the same time, there are other issues bouncing around there is the debate about how Scotland would join the European Union? Would it have to join as a completely new accession state or would it join as the successor to a union which has now changed and it would become a successor member, you know, just inherit all of its uh, treaty relationships and its powers and duties that it currently has as part of the UK? And there are also debates and questions about whether Scotland should join any of these institutions, particularly on the left. You have people like Patrick Harvey from the Green Party who is part of the Scottish independence movement. He wants his party to join in the Yes campaign. And Patrick has very, very strong views on whether Scotland ought to be joining NATO and also indeed probably in the European Union. Now, 
I just want to open this debate up first by asking the participants to give us five, ten minutes of a, sort of a, their proposition, what it is they believe we ought to be discussing, what they think the key issues are, and what their own opinions are about those issues. Now, um, Nicola's going to be a bit of a, um, a reality check on a lot of the public debate that's been going on. She is coming in as a neutral um, and offering us her academic expertise. So I'm going to start with Alan, because I think Alan, hopefully, on behalf of the SNP, can actually explain to us what the proposition would be, what it would, what an independent Scotland could gain, and what the world would gain from having an independent Scotland. Then I'll ask Tony, and then finally, Nicola. So, Alan. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Severin, uh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, thank you also for seating me to the left of Tony Benn. So that's uh, <laughs> a, a, an interesting place for me to be. I must, I must, be, must tell my dad. Uh, it's great to see so many of you uh, here to this evening. To, uh, I, as an MEP, we get uh, six weeks recess over the summer. Recess is, of course, different to holiday. I always take some holiday to do the festival properly. Uh, so it's been great this year to see so much political art, political theatre, political discussions like this. I think we have energised Scottish politics. We have a live, ongoing, energising discussion about what sort of country we could be. I think that's an exciting time, and if the people are in charge of that debate and that discussion in the direction where we're going, then I think we all win from that, whatever the conclusion's going to be. Uh, speaking of energising, I, I will make a brief plug for if you've not been to the Summer Hall venue yet. It's a new venue uh, at the, the old uh, veterinary school at the top end of the meadows. They have got some just spectacular work going on in there. It is new. It's, it's, it's what the Fringe used to be before it went all corporate comedy and rubbish. Uh, so uh, do, do, do make it along there. They really are doing some fantastic stuff. It, it's, it's very, very, very worth seeing. Uh, I do digress, digress slightly from Scotland's place in the world. And the question that I've been asked to answer is, uh, will Scotland independent lose clout in the world? Now, in order to answer that, I think you've got to answer two questions. Uh, one, how much influence, how much clout do we have in the world presently as Scotland and as part of the UK? And the second question, which is rather more existential for a nationalist, uh, so what? Does that actually matter? Are we actually sufficiently different to merit any sort of independent representation beyond that which we presently have. So first uh, the issue, uh, what influence do we have now as Scotland? Well, uh, people like us. Uh, the Hollywood uh, film industry does films about our red-haired princesses, and uh, the First Minister is very keen on that, so I'll move on. Uh, we have cooperation agreements uh, with uh, the likes of Malawi uh, over international development, uh, started by uh, the McConnell administration under the Labour Lib Dem coalition, continued by us. Uh, we've got agreements with the Maldives on climate change, uh, where we can use our technology and expertise to assist a, a nation which is in pretty dire straits. So we, we are playing a role in the world. Uh, our domestic action uh, in terms of uh, promoting Scotland as a renewable centre of expertise on, in all its forms, wind, wave, tide, biomass, all of this planet-saving technology which we are sharing with the world. Not gratis, but we are sharing. Uh, the Renewables uh, EMIC uh, Institute at Orkney has, uh, even just this week, signed yet another agreement, this time with Incheon in uh, South Korea, because uh, unlike uh, the Olympics Committee, we know the difference between North and South, uh, to help them develop their marine potential off the coast of Korea. Climate change will not be combated by one country acting in isolation. It will be combated by all of us 
of like mind working together. So we're doing some stuff. We've set uh, world-leading climate change targets in the Scottish Parliament. That was supported across the political spectrum, even many of the Tories. Uh, we have got uh, a real pro program uh, in terms of engaging with that international debate. I was in the Copenhagen talks to no great purpose or effect, but I was there. Uh, our minister, Stuart Stevenson, is just back from the Rio talks where we have been consistent in urging the world on to more ambitious targets than we've seen to date. And that is a role in the world. Is it binding? No. Under the terms of the question, would it count as clout? No. Now, the question then arises, uh, as part of the UK, what influence does Scotland have over the UK's international representation? Damn all. And if anybody can prove otherwise, I'll be glad to hear it. Uh, I, I'm not tribal in my politics. I used to work for a Labour MP when I was at law school. I spent time volunteering for a Lib Dem MP at Westminster while I was uh, doing a master's. Uh, I am not tribal in my politics. I go with what works. And I do not think the present situation serves as well. Now, don't take it personally. Uh, Wales doesn't have much influence either, nor does Yorkshire, nor does the Greater London Assembly. The UK is a unitary state. At the heart of that state is the doctrine, the Dicean doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, I find that flatly offensive to any concept of democratic sovereignty, democratic intellect, egalitarian amongst an active citizenry. On foreign policy, under the prerogative power, the, impact, the input of the people is neither sought nor required. I don't think that serves anybody well, but my country's got a different way of doing things. And in terms of an objective assessment to both of those questions, I, I, I hope I've been intellectually honest, and I, I, the only conclusion I can possibly reach in terms of where we are right now as Scotland, which every school report card I ever had uh, could do better. Now, of course, my school report cards were entirely down to my own uh, laziness and uh, lack of application, but in Scotland's case, it's not for want of ideas, it's not for want of commitment, it's not for want of willingness to engage with the structures of the world. Something is holding us back. Now, I believe I know what that something is, and that's what the people in Scotland are hopefully going to focus on for the next two years. But the real question... Aside from where we are and an assessment of what's working for us is, so what? Does it actually matter? Are we sufficiently different? Are Scotland's interests not, as David Cameron says, essentially not just the same as the UK's because the UK's the one in charge of the present constitutional circumstances? We contribute MPs to the Westminster Parliament. We are part of that. That is what decides such matters. Does that not serve us? Well, I, I don't think it does. Others may disagree, but I, I don't think it does. Our troops are in harm's way in two theatres. And I cannot conceive of any scenario where an independent Scottish government, an independent Scottish parliament, would have sanctioned the involvement in either conflict in the way in which we were involved. Thousands of people marched through the streets of many cities across these islands. And frankly, it didn't change government policy that much. I think that's a sign of a failing democracy. I think that's a sign of a democracy that is not reflective to the needs and wants of the people. <coughs> I think we can do better. And more domestically in Brussels, uh, I, I use the term advisedly, what we deal with in Brussels is not foreign policy. When I'm, as you've probably gathered, I'm certainly not a diplomat. I, I, I am dealing with domestic policy in a different place. The stuff we're dealing with in Brussels enters into domestic law, having been agreed to by the democratically elected MEPs, the democratically elected governments of Scotland or the UK, and the democratically elected parliaments of both places. I'm dealing with domestic policy in a different place. 
And I have seen numerous UK ministers of late, it's got worse under the current administration, but it wasn't that top beforehand, coming out to Brussels and making speeches for the benefit of the Daily Mail back home, frankly without little uh, cognizance of the long-term UK interests, much less the, uh, the, the, the UK, uh, the, forgive me, much less Scotland's. You will remember, if you cast your mind back to uh, the December summit, when Europe was facing a major crisis. Now, the, the last great crisis since the, next, since the last one until the next one, but the, the economic crisis has focused a lot of minds at governmental level across the EU. There was a real willingness to try and build up a structure that was going to work. The UK came into the room with an, un, an utterly unrealistic set of demands, and our Prime Minister left the talks thereby undermining the community method, undermining any chance of a viable, durable system that would have actually convinced the markets that the governments were serious, while achieving nothing. Unique in British political engagement with the European Union, he left the room having gained nothing, but made the entire edifice that much less stable than it otherwise could have been. Even Margaret Thatcher stayed in the room. I think we are served by a government in Brussels that doesn't get it and engages in precisely the wrong way. And I've not noticed a huge difference beyond a minor deterioration in the tone since the latest administration. So we could do better. And uh, in, in terms of that, there, there are some examples, but actually the, the primary argument for independence isn't about projecting our view on the rest of the world. That's not our nationalism. That's not the point of our nationalism. The point of our nationalism is recognising that we have done well in Scotland with the powers that we have, and thereby built the case for more. A realistic assessment of where we are right now comes to the conclusion that we could do better than we are. Now, where that debate will end up remains to be seen, but that is an energising discussion. And if we base that on facts and ambition, we can't help but win. So in terms of, uh, you look at the wider world, uh, where are we? Uh, the world also is globalizing, and in a world where borders matter less, power matters more. The power to be represented by a government, governmental structure that actually represents your interests is vital. I do not believe the Scottish demos is sufficiently reflected by the Westminster apparatus, who if ever is in the majority in that situation. Look at what we've done with the powers of the Scottish Parliament, our national parliament, since it was re-established. And it's often forgotten that it was re-established in 1999. This wasn't done to us. We reclaimed our historic right. And we've used those powers to implement the smoking ban before other parts of these islands, because that's the right thing to do for public health. We have, uh, I confidently predict, every plan to do the same with equal marriage legislation, because that will be a fairer, more respectful society. Uh, likewise, uh, we've uh, abolished prescription charges because a tax on ill health offends our values. Uh, we've also abolished student fees because education is not something to be bought like a loft extension as a privilege of the wealthy. It is a public good that contributes to our common weal. It can't have escaped your notice that many of those measures involve spending more money. In order to have a full political discourse, we need to work out where the money is coming from and how to nurture and grow our economy not just how to spend it. We've done well with the powers we have. We need more. And as I say, in a globalizing world, climate change, crime, pollution, food security, these are challenges that will not be met by any one nation. The world is full of small nations. Only some of us have clocked onto that fact. Multilateralism is the way forward for the globalizing world that we find ourselves in. 
And in order to be part of that globalised world, you need to have a governmental structure that reflects where you are. And the people of Scotland must be free to decide what our priorities are, and then having decided what those priorities are, who and how and in what structure to cooperate with like-minded friends and neighbours. I think Scotland could do better than we are presently doing. Everything we gained in 1707, and we did, of course, gain in 1707. We lost some things, we gained others. On balance, I think we gained. But everything we gained in 1707, under the Treaty of Rome, we keep. The right to live, work, study, trade, anywhere across the European Union, that stays. The common travel area, that stays. Everything we have that we like, we keep. But we gain the right to decide what our priorities are, free of all external influence. And having decided that, to decide to pool that sovereignty, to work with whoever we choose to work with, be it in the EU, the UN, NATO, or whatever organisations will replace those in years to come, we could do better than we're doing right now. Scotland could do better. Thank you. Now, Tony, if I could ask you to set well, out your vision of what Scotland would lose or gain if we became independent. Well, first of all, can I thank you very much for inviting me because I'm an observer of this scene from London, uh, but I'm also very, very interested and always have been in Scotland, love Scotland, and I think the effect of this on not just Scotland but on England, on the United Kingdom would be very profound. Um, first, I must say that uh, Scotland, being a nation, has an absolute right to determine its own future by a referendum, and uh, if the referendum does decide Scotland wants to be an independent nation, then that will have to be accepted uh, by England and uh, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, we shall have to make the best we can of it. I'd also say I personally am very strongly in favour of votes at 16, because uh, I know it's part of the arrangement that they should be for this uh, purpose uh, votes at that age, but also my own opinion is that uh, people of that age should be allowed to vote anyway in all general elections uh, on the grounds that if you're old enough to work and you're old enough to marry and you're old enough to join the army and you're old enough to earn a, a, an income and old enough to pay taxation, you're old enough to vote. And I feel very, very strongly about that. I came back from the war in 1945 I was an RAF pilot, I'd been in the Air Force for three years, and they wouldn't let me vote on the grounds that I wasn't 21. <laughs> and I was absolutely incensed by that, and I campaigned very hard, along with lots of other people, for votes at 18. And now I think the time has come to have votes at 16, and I think that would do a great deal to meet the problem of apathy among young people, as we're told there is. On the other hand, having said this, I must also tell you I have an emotional reaction to this, and I'm not ashamed to say this because I think a lot of what we've just heard has been emotionally uh, impacting. Uh, my mother was a Scot from Paisley. My father was, uh, was an Englishman, but he was a member of parliament for Leith and later for North Aberdeen. I have a daughter who married a Scotsman, and therefore I have a Scots son-in-law, and they have two children. And I would feel, if Scotland became independent, as if my family had been divorced and uh, it would have a huge effect on my family. And as I crossed the Scottish border, 
yesterday coming up from London and I saw the flags flying and welcome to Scotland, I felt that was an indication of the acceptance in the United Kingdom that we're all citizens of one country with a common interest in each other's success. So I say that because that does influence the way I would vote if I had the vote. I could not vote personally for an independent Scotland because I think the implications of it are a bit more complicated than we've been told. I strongly supported the uh, devolution and the Scottish Parliament and I think it's been a great success and I pay tribute to the work that's been done in so many areas like the abolition of student fees and prescription charges and so on and I think uh, political life in Britain is too centralised anyway and I supported for that reason a, a, a mayor for London and a lot of devolution not only to Scotland but to other parts of the United Kingdom because if you want to have a successful country you've got to liberate the people who live in it and give them an opportunity to develop their own way of dealing with the problems. But having said that, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say that if Scotland was an independent country it would be less influential worldwide than the United Kingdom is. And so would England be less influential and so would Wales and Northern Ireland. Inevitably, at a time when power tends to become centralised, not just in individual countries but worldwide, if you break loose from one of those groups, then you find yourself at a grave disadvantage. And the world is not run from London, as people sometimes suggest, the world is run by big corporations who have enormous power and the IMF, which we don't elect, and we have somehow to find an answer to these problems nationally and internationally. And I think it's very important that we recognise that the great threat to our society, and I say this as a socialist, is that uh, the, pe the world is run by rich people and everybody else is, to some extent, uh, under their control and the dis distribution of wealth is far and away a bigger issue than the present arrangement we have under which everybody in their own way is trying to find a better way of running the status quo without changing it. So that's my view and I think uh, when the moment comes it'll be a very big decision for Scotland. It'll be watched with enormous interest all over the world and also in England <coughs> I think that if the decision is taken to set up uh, frontier posts so that when you go to England you have to go through immigration and so on. Well, if it doesn't mean that, it, it, what does independence really mean? And if you decide to keep the Queen and keep the Bank of England and keep uh, uh, nuclear weapons within NATO, then what actually are you gaining in terms of real independence? And I think these are some of the issues that people will have to think about when they go to vote. But as I said at the beginning, the right to make this decision is a right of the Scottish people in an election and must be treated respectfully by everybody else in the United Kingdom and also worldwide. So thank you very much for listening. So, Nicola. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and, and delighted and honoured to share a panel with such distinguished guests. Um, we've been asked to focus on the external 
dimension. I want to echo one of the points that I think Alan was making in that I don't think the external dimension is driving um, the nationalist movement in Scotland, the, the campaign for independence, but it does matter. It matters where Scotland um, would be as an independent country in relation to international organisations, in its relations with other countries. Uh, so I wanted to, to focus uh, my opening remarks on membership issues, both membership of the European Union and membership of NATO, which is currently uh, being debated. Now, with regard to the European Union, the SNP's position is clear. It wants an independent Scotland to be an independent member state uh, within the European Union. Not everyone out there who favours independence shares that view, but I think it's fair to say the majority of independence supporters do share that view. Why? The EU matters. It matters for trade. It matters for regulation. It matters for confronting policy challenges that cross uh, international frontiers. It acts on behalf of, of its member states in the international community uh, with the big players uh, in this world. And even in the current context, it provides a stable political framework uh, in which a transition to independence could take place. There's been a lot of heat and not very much light shed on the issue of whether or not Scotland would automatically become a member of the European Union. There's a lot of legal questions around that. Uh, there are also political questions that I think are, are perhaps not uh, given as much focus. The legal questions depend on how, we would, uh, how, how uh, an independent Scotland would be treated um, internationally. Would it be treated as a successor state, perhaps along with the rest of the UK, and therefore inherit all of the treaty obligations, including uh, membership of the European Union. That's the, the, the SNP view. The alternative view is that it would be treated as a state which has seceded from another state, that the rest of the UK would be the successor and inherit all of the obligations, and as a newly independent seceding state, uh, Scotland would then have to apply for membership of the European Union and other organisations. There are very fiercely and genuinely held views on both sides, but I think the only honest answer that we can give uh, to those questions is that we just don't know. We're in uncharted territory here. There is no precedent uh, for a, a, a part of um, an existing member state um, becoming independent and seeking to remain within the European Union. There, there, there is nothing uh, in terms of legal precedent to guide us here. And the differences of opinion are not just among politicians, they're also among legal scholars, among lawyers, and so on. I was at an event recently at the University, uh, Edinburgh University Law School, which brought together the best legal minds in the country, and they did not agree uh, on, on the outcome. So it is uncharted territory. But that's the legal issues. There are political issues too. And yes, there are some member states who might be worried about a precedent being set, states such as Spain that have their own uh, nationalist struggles to contend with. And yes, there are issues to discuss about the terms uh, of membership, and no doubt we'll discuss some of these tonight. But it is inconceivable to me that an independent Scotland would not be welcomed into the European Union. Scotland has been a member of the EU through the UK for 40 years. It's deeply embedded uh, within the EU. The EU has a big stake in Scotland also, and the EU 
has always been an expansionist project, continues to be an expansionist project, and the idea that Scotland would be excluded uh, after independence, to me, is just not uh, very credible. Now, with regards to NATO membership, there are similar issues uh, of membership uh, that emerge if we are thinking about uh, NATO membership, similar issues as to how an independent Scotland would be treated uh, internationally and whether it would inherit that membership and decide to stay in or decide to withdraw or whether it would have to apply as a new member. And there is a proposal being tabled uh, at the forthcoming SNP conference uh, that would assume that an independent Scotland would inherit uh, NATO membership. The proposal is to retain uh, NATO membership subject to an agreement to remove nuclear weapons from Scotland's waters. Now, whether we would inherit those obligations or need to apply uh, to become a new member, once again, there's, there's very little doubt in my mind that if an independent Scotland, if whoever was governing an independent Scotland at the time wanted to be part of NATO, uh, there is little doubt in my mind that they would be allowed to be part of NATO. It's an open question as to whether we would want it. What's in it for Scotland? A few things may be in it. Security, being part of a powerful international alliance can provide reassurance that nations will be protected against an external threat, whether it's a military threat or some of the new security threats from terrorism or organized crime and so on. Resources, um, being a member of an international alliance will alleviate pressure uh, on investment in an independent uh, military or security or strategic capabilities. So one would of course have to contribute to NATO operations but can draw on the resources of allies too. But crucially also there is a political gain. Um, it would, NATO membership would bring international standing. Being a member of NATO can enhance a country's international standing, a way of consolidating um, Scotland's status as a sovereign nation state that would be recognised internationally. Now, I'm not saying that that makes it a good thing. I'm ambivalent on that issue, and that's an open question. Um, but I think the debate over whether or not membership is a good thing needs to recognise that NATO of today is not the same organisation that was set up with a primary purpose of defending the West against a Soviet threat. But it is still a nuclear alliance. Seems likely to be a nuclear alliance for some time to come. Does that compromise um, the SNP's policy on nuclear weapons in Scotland? And I do believe that is a, a red line issue uh, for many nationalists. I think as a new independent uh, member ally within NATO, an independent Scotland would come under enormous pressure to demonstrate that it was a good ally. It would have to demonstrate its commitment in, one, in, in some way. It would have to contribute to NATO operations. It can be selective to some extent, but there would be pressure to demonstrate commitment. That doesn't mean that it would be obliged to host a fellow ally's entire nuclear arsenal. There is nothing in the regulations, so far as I am aware, to suggest that there would be any obligation uh, of that kind. Um, there may be one way to show commitment and solidarity 
um, that would be to have some room for manoeuvre, some room for compromise on the nuclear issue, perhaps on a timescale uh, for a transitional arrangement. And that could potentially be a powerful bargaining tool, not just in external relations, but in independence negotiations themselves. There are other issues that I'm sure we'll discuss on the influence question, but I think I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thank you. So before I throw this, these, all these subjects uh, open for question and answer to the floor, I just want to ask a few questions myself just to tease out a couple of issues. And there's one particular question I need to ask Alan, which wasn't uh, touched on in his preamble, his opening remarks. Where do you stand on whether Scotland should join NATO? And also, do you really think that it is feasible for Scotland to go into a discussion with NATO about retaining membership or becoming a successor member, at the same time as denying one of its central propositions that it is a nuclear alliance, and therefore, as a condition, Trident has to go off the Clyde. Do you really think that's tenable? I was wondering if this would come up, and on balance I thought it might. Uh, <laughs> forgive me, I'll start with a caveat, which I know sounds a little slippery, but uh, this is a live discussion within the SNP presently. Uh, we've got a long-standing policy of opposition to NATO. There is a motion going forward to our national conference in uh, October in Perth, uh, which proposes that we change that. So until such time as we change our policy, I am bound by the policy of the party, is that, which is that we are opposed to NATO membership. Uh, that's the party policy. Uh, there is a live proposal to change that party policy. You've asked me my view, and my view personally is that I'm sitting in a chamber with 27 member states. Uh, I'm sitting with some countries who are nuclear members, some countries who are not, some countries are part of NATO, some who are not. There are every possibility to be a non-nuclear NATO member, Iceland, Norway being two of our closest. Uh, the idea that... Uh, NATO equals you must have nuclear weapons on your territory. That's, that's flatly untrue. There is nothing in the NATO statutes which uh, give that sort of obligation. Uh, there's no such thing as NATO nuclear weapons. The nuclear weapons are always sovereign to one NATO member state, in which case we're talking presently about the UK nuclear arsenal and the idea that the UK nuclear arsenal would be based in what would then be a neighboring, very friendly, but still foreign power. I just don't think that's a serious possibility. There are ample scope for negotiations within NATO about the removal of NATO we uh, nuclear weapons being stationed on one soil. Canada did this under the Trudeau government in the 80s, precisely what we're looking to achieve. There is absolutely no obligation to keep nuclear weapons on the Clyde. That is, as, exactly as, as we've heard, a red line issue for us. But for my part, I believe that uh, I am pro the motion going forward to the SNP conference in the sense that I think tying our hands on NATO membership, I mean, the, the, the clue is in the question. North Atlantic Treaty Organization, that, that would be us. Without us, the UK has considerably less interest in the North Atlantic geographically. Look at the map. Look at the marine uh, assets which we have. They are actually ours, not the other way around. The idea that there's any credible European defense capability is just not a serious proposition. And I am personally minded to support the motion, but that is very much a view that's in progress. Like many members of the SNP, I didn't join and I'm not promoting an independent Scotland to talk about guns and tanks and bombs. So that is my position, and the two issues are distinctly separate. Could we be an independent NATO member? Yes. Would that entail the permanent stationing of nuclear weapons on our soil? 
Absolutely not. They've been removed from other NATO members before. That would be a discussion, same as everything else. But the removal of NATO, uh, nuclear weapons is an absolute red line for the SNP. You also spoke about your view that an independent Scotland would be highly unlikely to ever agree to um, interventionist wars or invasions like Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, what would happen, though, if you were a member of NATO and there were to be a Kosovo-style conflict? And remembering what Alex Salmond, the party leader, said about Kosovo in 1999, what happens if he has a view that the Scottish public disagrees with? Maybe the Scottish public would like to inter intervene in Kosovo, but he doesn't. And where would that leave a, a Scottish government? Mm -hmm. Well, you'll appreciate you're asking me a hypothetical, let's pretend question. So in an independent Scotland, we will have a markedly different way of doing foreign policy and doing uh, interventions of that sort. The Scottish Parliament, the Scottish people will be much more responsible, much more involved, much more in charge. And this was where I deliberately talked about the Dicean doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty and the prerogative powers. We will not be doing that as an independent state. So to apply it back to Kosovo is, is a different issue. And in terms of future actions, the, action for, the, the requirement for common action is in the event of the attack on a NATO member state. Now, if you join an alliance, then you sign up to what that alliance means. But that's not all actions. That's not signing up to everything that NATO decides to undertake. This is a gathering of nations acting in a gathering of nations type setup, like the Council of Ministers in, in the European Union. NATO is not some shadowy organization that decides to do stuff without any democratic input. This is a gathering of independent nation states working together on defense issues. Every member state has the right to opt out of actions which do not involve uh, mutual defence, and that would need to be taken on its merits at the time on the basis of what was actually extant at the time. I, I just want to test you on one point. Though. I mean, on what basis would Scottish political structures be any different? What, on what basis would a Scottish government be required to behave differently when it came to democratic mandate for a particular foreign policy decision? I don't understand quite where the, where the mechanism would arise. Well, this comes down to the written constitution that an independent Scotland will have. Uh, we are committed in the SNP to seeing a written constitution which guarantees rights in a very Scandinavian, uh, left-of-centre, social democratic format. The content of that constitution is something that will be discussed nearer the time. You'll be hearing a lot more about that as uh, the White Paper and uh, other documents about independence come forward. We will not have... The, the whole point to independence isn't that we were the UK but a wee bit smaller. The whole point is that we are recreating an ancient, active democracy. The point that we are engaging the people of Scotland in these decisions. The point is that we are not acting as a faraway government. We are actually acting on behalf of the people of Scotland. We will be doing things differently. Tony, can I ask you, um, one of the points which Alan was referring to quite frequently in his uh, preamble was that Scotland is actually quite a radical country. It's quite a left-of-centre country, and in many respects, it, the, the, the majority view in Scotland, taking Alan's view, would be that very close to yours on issues like Iraq, Afghanistan, possibly the Falklands. Wouldn't having an independent Scotland give your politics even greater resonance, even greater force, if Scotland was able to actually represent those politics on the world stage and take a much more proactive role in NATO or the European Union or at the UN and start saying no as a member state in a way that it couldn't do now? Well, I think if you want a change of policy, you have to 
bring about a change of thinking by a nation. And if I wanted to uh, change uh, policy in Britain on nuclear weapons or anything else, I wouldn't expect to see that advanced by Scotland becoming independent and opting out. I would say, well, my job is to campaign for that. And I think the idea that a divided United Kingdom would be better able to reach the right decisions is an illusion, really. I think the same debates would go on all the time and the same pressures would be on Scotland as is on the Britain and British government to follow existing policies and those are ones I disagree with and maybe a majority of the Scottish people disagree with. On, on the point you're making that actually decisions in the modern world are made by unelected, unaccountable organisations and institutions, whether it's major national, um, you know, corporate, international corporations or the IMF... Your point then appears to be that Scotland, as an independent country, be even more vulnerable to those forces, even less able to uh, defend itself or to take action that was against their interest. Is that, is that your position? Well, I think uh, any country smaller than the United Kingdom would be more vulnerable to pressure from international capital, which is operating now within the Eurozone, where, you know, the, Itali the, uh, day, uh, the Greeks are told what their policy's got to be, and they're told by unelected members of the European establishment. And, frankly, I don't think their situation would be a lot easier if Greece was out of the uh, European uh, uh, zone countries. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think it would meet any of the points that Alan has made. So would you invite the Scottish people in that case to reconsider joining the European Union if Scotland became independent? Well, I was opposed to our going in in 1975. We lost the vote, we stayed in, and we are now quiet members of the European Union because, matter of fact, not being in the ecozone, we're not at the heart of European debates. We're just there as a sort of friendly partner. Mm -hmm. But even so, they do have power to give us instructions, and that would be an argument for our leaving the uh, European Union, and I wouldn't be in favour of making that an issue. But I'm sure Alan might argue that being part of the European Union gives, would, give, would give an independent Scotland the defence against, or the bulwark against, you know, unelected powers. Would, would you say that was fair? I mean, that it, that it would give that collective power and influence is actually in Scotland's interests. Well, thank you for letting me come in on this because I really need to correct a misapprehension. The idea that there's Brussels bureaucrats telling us all what to do is a flat delusion. It's, it's just not the case. The reason why Greece is having a bad time at the moment is because they had a series of corrupt and inefficient governments that lied in their annual return to the European Central Bank. If you sign up to a set of rules which have consequences then you can hardly blame barmy bureaucrats for asking you to enforce those consequences in the event of your default on those actions. Now, that's why the people of Greece are having a dreadful time at the moment. Their government has been corrupt and inefficient for the best part of 10 years. The government fell several times because of this. Independent Greek national statistics were falsified. This has been proven. This has been demonstrated. Anything, and I also explained how EU stuff comes into our domestic setting. It is democratically agreed by the Council of Ministers, who are your democratically elected government either in Edinburgh or in London. It's agreed with your democratically elected MEPs. Love us or hate us, we are there on your behalf. 
Uh, it doesn't enter into law domestically unless there's an enabling instrument by the Westminster or Holyrood parliaments. There's loads of democracy going on. It's that people aren't paying attention. And that leaves a vacuum into which you can see bluntly irresponsible nonsense being put forward that there's some Schmerz organization again in Brussels telling us all what to do and trampling our, our rights which have been dearly held in these islands for years. If we sign up to something and we enact the legislation, it's hardly unreasonable for us to be expected to actually do it. That's the process that we're seeing, but that's the only bit that the Daily Mail wakes up to. And it is terribly unfortunate that that's the level of European debate in these countries. And I think Scotland could do considerably better than we're being served by the British political debate on this at the moment. Nicola, can I ask, just in terms of the sheer practicalities of this move, as I understand your uh, analysis, the European Union, the institution and the member states, before they start judging how on what terms Scotland would join Europe, we'll be waiting to see the basis on which Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom were collaborating, what the shape of the reformed union relationship would be before they would actually start saying this is, you know, what terms you would, you would have to meet or how we'd negotiate. Is that right? Possibly, but we don't know. And that's, that's okay. the issue, is that w this has never been done before. Um, my hunch is that um, these external organizations um, would expect a negotiated solution between the partners within the UK, between the UK government and um, the representatives of um, what would become the independent Scotland. So I think that they would, they would expect a solution there that independence would be negotiated rather than unilateral um, and then it would be easier for them to respond to that to that sort of situation. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the choreography of that then, let's assume that um, the Yes campaign wins in October 2014. Let's assume that then it takes months, many months, perhaps a year or whatever, before the rest of the UK and Scotland have reached a, 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 an agreed settlement. At that point, how long do you think it feasible, it's feasible for Scotland to renegotiate? How long would it take before a deal could be reached? It seems to me, I have to say, that it could take months, even a year or two, before everybody really sits down and works out how this is going to take shape and form. Well, yes, that, that's, that's possible, but I don't think people are going to wait until the day after an independence vote to think about it. I think these, these discussions and analysis are going on just now uh, to try and anticipate, to try and prepare. Um, so in terms of uh, a position within the EU, um, I do not think that if Scotland was to be in the position of having to apply for new members, I do not think it would have to join the end of the queue. Um, I think there are things that can be negotiated quickly um, in, in that sort of situation. Um, so, but again, I must stress, it's uncharted territory. We okay. do not know. Now look, I don't want to hog the question, so I would like to open it up to the floor now. Um, can we wait until the microphone arrives? Um, and can I just ask you, sir, in the middle to start us off? It's going to take a while to get the microphone to you, I'm fear. Let's just... And obviously, if you could um, say who it is you're addressing the question to, or... First of all, it's to all three. First of all, paying tribute to Tony Benn and all his work he's done. And uh, there was a, a letter in the Scotsman today. I'll just say a few words in the middle. 
because it refers to a tribute to him. I used to agree with him on the so-called mistake of nationalism when it was uh, equated with superiority, domination, and aggression. Now, however, we have the inheritance of the English imperialist inheritance, whereas Scotland has a tradition of internationalism, community values, and equality. But what I want really to say is that the most significant difference between maximum devolution and minimum uh, independence is the uh, global influence we'll have in removing nuclear weapons from Scottish soil. And this is an overriding consideration. Now, uh, I am um, very much connected with the, with the Labour Party, and my MSP, Sarah Boyack, if I can quote just three lines, she says, I also believe that if we were not to replace Trident, it would send a powerful message internationally, potentially a very positive move in multinational, multilateral disarmament discussions with other countries. And my own member of parliament, Ian Murray, agrees. And many in the Labour Party, including the former... Um, First Minister, um, and so on and so on and so forth, and certainly at grassroots level, and that is made by the action so that, uh, by the way, I know Alistair Darling, he used to be in the um, CND. Can, now, do, do you have a question for us, too, for the panel? Well, okay. First of all, after, Indi after the memorandum, it'll take more than two years of negotiations and in 2016, there's a, an election, could well be a Labour government in Scotland. So nothing will be decided uh, before the referendum. We've just got to educate ourselves. Okay. That's the, um, there's, there's no question as such. <laughs> okay, fine. Now, there was... Can I just ask for this, the gentleman up there on the left, just have his hand up there, please? I will get round everybody, it's just the lights are a bit um, intense over here. I wanted to ask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. NATO. Um, I'm dismayed by what Alan was saying uh, about it being democratic. Um, as I understand it, the basis for the war in Afghanistan was that the United States invoked the North Atlantic Treaty, and in October 2001, the North Atlantic Council accepted this invocation. Uh, the armed attack, as specified in Article 5, was the September the 11th um, outrage. Terrorism has never before or since been accepted as justification for armed action. NATO, surely, is basically a blank check to whoever is sitting in the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, it is foolish, in my view, indeed unpardonable folly, um, to give such a blank check to, it could be by Christmas, Mitt Romney, it could be by this time next year, if he had a heart attack, um, Mr. Ryan. And I find this an alarming prospect. Um, I wondered whether the panel did also. So, Alan, I'll put that over to you, I think. So, unpardonable folly to accept NATO's hegemony over Scotland. I hope I was as honest with you as I can be about where I sit on this. I'm willing to have the discussion. SNP policy is where it is presently. 
There's a live debate within the party about whether to amend that policy. Uh, the idea that NATO is a blank check, that's not a description that would work in Copenhagen or Reykjavik or many other sensible NATO member state capitals. I think we've had a great deal of misapprehension about what NATO actually is. I'm not pro-NATO. I'm pro the people of Scotland being in charge of such arrangements as we choose to undertake. NATO is part of that international architecture. There's a live, a live debate underway within the SNP about this and within the people of Scotland about this. But I think we need to do that on the basis of real facts and real understanding. So, uh, Tony, the, the question is asking there about whether Scotland would lose any sense of autonomy or you know, freedom of action if it were to be part of NATO. Well, I think the situation really would be this. The pressures for existing policies in NATO, in Britain, and the rest of the world would be quite unchanged by Scottish independence. And the Scottish government would find itself subject to exactly the same pressures as the British government is from the Americans, from NATO, from Europe. And therefore, what might happen would be that independence led to very little change. And that would uh, defeat the objective of having independence. But this is all speculation. Uh, and I only offer that because I know the influences that do um, bring pressure to bear on British governments on all these things. And I find it hard to believe the same pressures would not be there on Scottish uh, ministers if there was an independent Scotland. Now, is anybody in the room keen to take this debate away from NATO onto any other subject? I'm quite curious if we can move it on. Can that gentleman there in the middle, please? Uh, thank you very much, Chairman. I wanted to ask Tony Benn about what I think is his rather curious notion that Scotland shouldn't be independent because he's got a Scottish son-in-law. I have many relatives in many countries, including France and Spain and New Zealand and Australia and Canada, and I wondered if he thinks those countries shouldn't be independent because I've got relatives there. No, I'm giving a personal judgment from the fact that I'm very fond of Scotland and I was brought up proud to be a Scot. I lived in Scotland in 1928 in Clyde Bank. I've been in Scotland on many occasions in the past, and I feel Scotland is a part of my home country. And I'm only arguing that if that were not to be the case, I would feel a part of me was alienated. But that's not to argue that if you have a member of the family who marries someone from another country, you're obliged to join up with them. I'm not saying that. I'm sorry if that impression was created. Alan, do you have a, a, a take on this? I, I, I do, and I, I've said within SNP circles for many years that we must be sensitive to the feeling of sadness down south at the idea that we'd somehow want to not be part of Westminster. There is a, an emotional response to this, which it's an emotional response, it's an illogical response, but it's not, that's not to say it's not there and it's not genuine. But the social union of these islands, I'm, I'm an English qualified lawyer, right? I headed south at 18, I studied at Leeds University, I went to Nottingham Law School, I worked in a firm in London for a number of years. Uh, I, the idea that my English friends would feel foreign is something that makes me sad. But forgive me, that question wasn't asked and that answer isn't relevant. The issue is what's going to be the best way in which we can build better lives for the people of Scotland. Because we are part of a system presently that has delivered suboptimal outcomes in terms of 
effectiveness of governance, in terms of economic growth, in terms of democratic participation, in terms of pretty much every societal measure that matters for the people of this country. Glasgow, where I'm from, has got parts of that city with a lower life expectancy and poorer outcomes than the people of the Gaza Strip. For anyone to say that the status quo is working for the people of Scotland is a flat, self-serving, bluntly, delusion. We can do better than we're doing right now. We must be sensitive about that. But this is where the beery, blokey Scotland going off on its own, Scotland splitting up, Scotland somehow doing something to... I've never wanted to split anything up in my life, and I find it offensive that anyone would think that's where I'm coming from. The idea that we should take responsibility for Scotland, the idea that the people of Scotland care most about the future of this country, that, that, th these are self-evident. And for us to want to take responsibility for our own development and our own priorities and our own place in the world, that's the gentlest of ambitions. And I think that's something that people can very readily get to we lose nothing in terms of the social common travel area, the bonds of kith and kin that we have and will always have across these islands. What we're talking about is where are, decision made, where are decisions made and who are the people who make those decisions accountable to. Presently, we're in a system that is dysfunctional and not delivering and we can do better. Nicola. In, in, in other um, regions and countries of the world where there are similar tensions and debates about uh, secession by regions or states within states, talk about additional devolution, are similar debates taking place? Are, there, are, are people in Spain, perhaps the Catalans and the Basques, all talking about being separated from their you know, brothers and sisters and cousins in Madrid or whatever? Or is this something that's very typical to or very specific to our debate and discussion? I don't think it's peculiar in particular to hear, you're right, there are similar debates going on in other parts of Europe. Um, I don't think there's another situation where there is a, a nationalist government with a, an independence agenda. In Catalonia, for example, support for independence is quite high just now, but the nationalist government there is um, somewhat ambivalent on its solution, on its pre uh, constitutional preference. It wants more autonomy, for sure. Um, but it doesn't yet uh, want uh, independence, although there's probably not much difference between the kind of independence that the SNP government is proposing at the moment and something which looks more like an enhanced uh, devolution settlement. I wanted to come back to a, a point that, that Tony made in the opening remarks about feeding frontiers um, at, at, at the border, and this um, relates... Uh, in, in one respect to conditions of EU membership and whether or not um, an independent Scotland would be obliged to be part of the Schengen Agreement, uh, which supports free travel throughout uh, the Schengen area. Um, if that were an obligation, then there would perhaps have to be some sort of conditions because the UK currently is not uh, part of Schengen. Um, my view on this is that there would be no such obligation that that would be part of the negotiations uh, with the European Union over the kind of membership and there would be something similar to the, the situation with Ireland and the UK currently where there is a common travel area which predates uh, the, the European community uh, between the Irish public, Republic and, uh, and the UK but it is now recognised within the EU treaties and um, 
a sensible solution would be to extend that to include uh, an independent Scotland as well. So I don't see a scenario where there will be um, passport control at the border between Scotland and England. I think there will continue to be um, free travel throughout these islands. On, on that point, would the same argument apply with the euro and the sterling debate then? That, they, that Europe would say, well, actually, since Scotland and, and the rest of the UK already have a common currency, there's no obligation or demand, despite what a lot of people say about the current treaties, that Scotland would have to take the euro if it would become a member state. I think the EU works on the basis of negotiation. The treaties are important, but negotiation is also important as well. If Scotland did not have an independent currency to begin with, then it can't possibly be in control of meeting convergence criteria for the euro. And I don't think there is an appetite even within the eurozone to compel um, new additional members to, to, to the eurozone just now uh, until we get their issues sorted out. Okay. Now, more questions from the floor, please. I'm going to try and go over this way if I can. Uh, are there any women? Yes, please. Can I ask you to take a question, please? Let's just wait for the microphone to come over. Uh, hi. Um, I used to be in the Scottish National Party. I left about 10 years ago because I did, disagreed with its policy on uh, European Union. However, I, I'm still keen on independence for Scotland, but I've been hearing, um, well, we're not, we're going to keep the Queen, then we're going to keep Sterling. Well, we were going to have the Euro, but it's, well, we don't bother about the Euro because it's so terrible, because uh, uh, it's making such a mess of everything. Uh, and, and we might be staying in NATO, and I think we'll water it down a bit more, and I can feel my enthusiasm kind of disappearing. Well, why don't you just call it Devo Max and have done with it? You might get a, a yes vote then. Uh, how would you suggest, how, how, how can I get my enthusiasm back when uh, this independence seems to be sort of so weak and, and wishy-washy that um, it's hardly worth bothering with? And this is a question for Alan, presumably. Yeah. Okay, Alan, in, in, in delight is nothing more than just simply a continuation of the status quo with a few bells and whistles. Discuss. No, don't. I'm setting up a joke in my own head. Uh, <laughs> let me think. Various people are bringing forward various propositions about what independence means in the modern, interconnected, globalised world, which hopefully I, I explored a wee bit in my opening remarks. We are part of overarching international structures, be it the WTO, the IMF, and I absolutely agree we need to see a democratisation of both those organisations. We're already part of a structure that is the European Union, which I hopefully have shed some light on how decisions are actually reached at. It's utterly democratic. Uh, yeah, there's all, there's I one. Uh, NATO, again, we need to go into that on the basis of how it actually works, not how we think it works. Now, you've got various people coming forward with various propositions. The position of the SNP is clear. Now, on the monarchy, that's being used as evidence that we're somehow not properly independent. Go to Canada, Australia, New Zealand and say that. The Union of the Crowns is different distinct. It's not the same discussion. And to try and lump it into the same discussion is an intellectually dishonest tactic, forgive me. So that's the monarchy. Currency union. There was a currency union between Belgium and Luxembourg for the best part of 50 years before they went into the euro. It worked tolerably well. We would need a new arrangement in terms of macroeconomic management. Indeed we would, but it has been done before and it's not beyond the wit of humankind to come up with a way of making that work for us. The sine qua non about independence is that once we get the power back, we choose what our priorities are, and then we design what structures will best reflect such cooperation as we want to undertake. 
Now, there's a degree of transition in that because we don't get from there from here immediately. So there will be a transition, as there always has been. But call devolution dominion status and look at Canada's history. That's actually the best uh, prognosis of where we actually are. We are on a glide path where we are distinct and becoming more so domestically. And that will need to be reflected increasingly in international fora, whatever they may be. But the point is that the people of Scotland need to be in charge of that process. Presently, we're not. Nic Nicola has... Uh, yeah, has I'm about issue. to contradict myself. Um, but you were asking about the differences between devolution max and independence, independence light and whether or not there, there, there are any differences. I think I said earlier that there are probably not many, but of course there are. And I would refer back to uh, one of the earlier contributions. One of the fundamental differences is the position uh, with nuclear, nuclear weapons on the cloud. Under devolution max, they stay. That is non-negotiable under devolution max. Under some form of independence, that comes to the negotiating table. The other issue, which won't please you, of course, but is, is, is independent membership of the European Union. That would be seeing Scotland, even under independence light, as a member state of the European Union. Um, of course, a smaller member state than the UK currently is, less influential than the UK currently is, uh, but with a direct link rather than an indirect one uh, through the UK just now. So those are, the, for me, the two clear differences that remain. Thank you. Uh, more questions, please. Um, I'll take this lady at the front, please. Is it Microphone's coming over here. Thank you. <clears throat> if we go back to 1707, people like Andrew Fletcher wanted a federal union, not an incorporating union. There were a large number of Scots who at that time saw that as a possible future. It was rejected for all sorts of reasons. Can you see any future for people, for so many people in Scotland who like myself, like um, Tony Benn, have got links on both sides. I was born in England. I've lived here for 40 years, and my name is MacLeod. And so I couldn't be more Scottish, but I don't want a breakup. But I would like to see a far more independent Scotland. Could this be reached by federation? And that would include Wales becoming a federal part and Ulster. Thank you. Alan, yep. Thank you, madam. That's a great question. And a new relationship across these islands is essentially what we're talking about. And I'll come back to the joke that I didn't actually make there, that people are coming up with all sorts of blueprints within their own head for the future, Indie Light, Devo Max, uh, Devo Plus, Devo Minus. I can't believe it's not constitutional upheaval. There's all sorts of templates out there. You drill into any of them, there's not much substance. So if you're talking about the idea of a federal UK, and there were parties that talked about independence within the UK a number of years back, and if people actually come up with that as a realistic proposition with some detail that means something, then let's discuss that. Thus far, nobody has. So where we are deliberately, and we're in the remarkable situation that I'm in favour of independence within the European Union, and if the people of Scotland in their wisdom want to keep the want to keep the crown and keep the queen of head of state, that doesn't make us any less independent. If we decide to share a currency arrangement with Sterling, that doesn't make us less independent. It reflects the interconnection, which you've, you've alluded to in terms of the ties that we have. The social union is distinct from the political power that we're talking about. But frankly, 
I find it curious that I'm somehow expected to argue for Devo Max, let's call it that for a shorthand, when it's not my position. And this is where we've seen a curious, remarkable situation from the unionist parties. I, I, I won't call them the London parties because I think that's be a bit disingenuous on the part of my side, but for them not to be coming up with anything really isn't helping this discussion at all. Can I ask, let's try and get some questions on the foreign affairs, if we could. Has anybody got a question explicitly about international relations? Do you have, sir? Can I just get the microphone over there, please? Yeah, an issue that I hope obviously doesn't factor into Scott's minds when they're voting on, on independence, but I think is still interesting in the context of this is, what do you think the effect on the remaining states of the United Kingdom would have, what do you think the effect would be on the remaining UK states internationally if Scotland were to go its own way. So besides like obvious issues about the Security Council and so on, how do you think the rest of the world would perhaps change in its approach to England, Wales and Northern Ireland in, in all kinds of areas of negotiation when a large part of its land mass and its energy security suddenly disappears? Okay. Uh, Tony, can I throw this to you? I mean, would, it, would, would, would the rest of the UK's status be diminished if Scotland were to win Well, I mean, uh, England and... Uh, Wales and Northern Ireland would be weaker than the present United Kingdom, which is a bigger and stronger body. But listening to the way the discussion has gone, I'm struck with the idea that less would change if there was an independent Scotland, that every detail of the change that people would want would find that it was bargained about and pressure was brought to bear. And I think there might be a sense of great disappointment if people imagined that one vote in the referendum could lead to a new Scotland with new influence in the world. I think it would be much, much less effective than that. And what we really want is a discussion amongst ourselves, Scots, English, Welsh, Northern Irish, about what sort of country we want to live in. And I think you'd find a lot of what Scots nationalists may think would be reflected locally all over England wouldn't necessarily take the form of independence for Scotland, but it would say, these are the things we want done, let's campaign and get them. And I would like to see the influence that's gone into the Scottish nationalist movement released into the United Kingdom as a whole, because I think we would all benefit from that. But this, this is a, 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 an interesting objective question for the whole of the UK, isn't it, at a European level? Because presumably, if Scotland were to become independent, the rest of the UK's voting power in Brussels would be changed, would it not? Would it have it, it, Again, votes? all of that would be subject to negotiation. Mm, um, but objectively, possibly, it would have to be, wouldn't po it? Possibly there would be some, some change in that regard, Alan. You're probably more engaged in those debates uh, than, than I am. Um, and internationally, there may be some risks that um, not managing to maintain national unity or not managing to maintain territorial integrity could have a diminishing impact on the UK status. On the other hand, if the rest of the UK was able to manage um, this process um, through democratic means, through peaceful means, and manage a peaceful transition, its status could be enhanced considerably. I think there are opportunities it's here. It's reputational status. Yes, because there aren't that many examples of successful, peaceful, democratic transitions of this time. Um, I know there have been interventions in the debate um, over process and legality and so on, um, but it's really interesting 
that we, we are often contacted by overseas journalists and academics from overseas, and they were remarking, particularly the Spaniards, were remarking, remarking on how fascinating it was to them that there was no dispute over uh, the right for Scots to decide uh, their future in a referendum. In many other countries, including many European countries, that right would be disputed. So, I'll, I'll, you know, there are opportunities there uh, to enhance status too, should we, should we go down that road. Alan, I have to take a leap in the dark here and assume that you agree with everything she's just said. That basically Britain would be better off if Britain agreed nicely that we would cooperate and collaborate <laughs> and it would all be, you know, holding hands into the sunset. I'll continue that and I'll say that my political journey has, has been about what, go with what works. We have a dysfunctional democracy in the UK at the moment. If I thought the UK was capable of meaningful reform, maybe I'd be in a different place. But I think we've seen over Lords reform, we couldn't even have an AV referendum for goodness sake. I think we are part of a structure that doesn't work, and the fact is we've got a plan B that we can build up into something really quite exciting. Does anybody have a question about something we haven't even touched on yet? Yes. Something completely fresh? Over here. Can wait for the microphone, please, if you wouldn't mind. Just over here, please. Sorry, I don't really want to paraphrase but, uh, Bill, Bill Clinton, but uh, isn't, aren't we all pussyfooting around the economy? But not... What about international relations? I mean, is, okay. is, is there a relationship there, do you think? Well, uh, yeah, I, I just feel that this affects so much the, uh, the state of the economy here and what would happen, the, 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 the whole issue of international relationship is, would be changed by how, how the uh, economy functions. Can you just, sorry, I don't, don't mean to push you too far, but just explain a bit more what you mean. I don't quite... Well, I... I Can you put the microphone up in front of your mouth? Sorry, sorry. Um, it, 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 it seems to me that uh, by not taking account of the effect on the economy uh, of coming out, uh, that we're ignoring the possibility that um, uh, uh, other our image within the general international scene is going to be um, affected, and therefore um, to pussyfoot around it at the moment is is really not. It affects every aspect of our lives in the future of how the economy uh, functions. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that on every issue that you deal with, international relations, <coughs> legal relationships, any of those things, that that is an important uh, part of the whole debate. Tony, can I just um, ask you about this, this, this question about Scotland's economic clout being diluted and diminished by no longer being part of the UK? Uh, do you think that is a serious issue? Because there is an argument that the Scottish National Party government, Alex Hamill, put forward is that Scotland's status would actually be greatly enhanced because it would be able to free itself of the shackles of you know, Westminster economic policy and be able to generate much more inward investment. No, I, um, I personally don't think that Scottish independence would make Scotland more influential in the world because it would be a smaller country with resources and capacity for change, 
but I think the world would look at it as a domestic argument within the UK and would have to negotiate all the changes you want, some of which might not happen. And therefore, in a sense, I think it would be led, it would be followed by disappointment that it didn't produce what was expected. And I'm not much struck by the argument that you can't make a change in the United Kingdom because that is a pessimism and you can't make progress on pessimism. You have to campaign for what you want, where you are, and if you do that, you'll make progress if you build up sufficient public support. So I'm for campaigning for change in the United Kingdom, and if you do that, I think Scotland's role could be very, very significant because of the energy and experience that Scots people have. Alan? Economic freedom is guaranteed within the Treaty of Rome. Uh, the right to live, work, study, travel, trade and freedom of capital across borders, that's, that's in the bank, that's safe. We keep that within the European Union. And as a country of five and a bit million people, we will be able to come up with the right business encouraging measures. Uh, to Scotland is the most scientific intensive nation in the world. We've got more scientists doing good stuff here than any other country. And yet, we're good at the science and the ideas, we're not very good at the commercialization because we've got a structure that doesn't reflect or reward where we actually are. We will be able to, as a country of five million people, come up with a better system that better fits our potential and our needs. And forgive me, we do have 300 years of history to look back on and judge objectively. We are part of a system that has not delivered the optimum output. I'm not saying it's a bad output, I'm saying it's not as good as we could be. And we are part of a country where we have massive and increasing inequality of wealth, and we're part of a system of government that is doing nothing to actually assist with that and quite a few things to make it worse. We can do better than we're doing. Business will do what business always does. It will adapt and trade and go where it's most likely to make money. So it's up to a domestic Scottish government to come up with a system that would be attractive. The idea that IKEA is doing business in the UK because they like the UK and we're a major player in the world state, for goodness sake. We're talking about business. They'll go where there is a stable regulatory environment, there's stable politics, and there's as little uncertainty as possible. What we're locked into is guaranteed relative decline versus the prospect of we could do an awful lot better with this than we've got today. Now, as ever with these kinds of discussions, we've... Um could go on for a long, long time, and unfortunately we've run out of time now, but Nicola's just going to make one final observation about this question of influence, I think. Just on influence, yes. I mean, I, I, could Scotland be more influential than the UK is? Of course not. Um, as a much smaller, smaller country, it would be a much smaller state. Um, but it could have influence. Small states uh, do have influence. They have to have allies, and I suspect if Scotland were to become independent, sometimes its allies would be uh, the rest of the UK, sometimes it may be uh, other countries. It would have to develop allies, it would have to develop perhaps niche capabilities. It couldn't have influence in NATO if it was to obstruct and opt out of all of the operations that it, that it didn't like. That, that wouldn't be practical or pragmatic. Um, but so, that, so there are possibilities, but they would, you would need to learn to play the games. Um, that's all I want to say. So, just to sum up very quickly, I think that my, my personal view, frankly, is I think that actually Tony and Alan have got a great deal in common. They share a great deal of politics. They probably share a great deal of you know, common outlooks and history and perspectives. But 
What they don't share is what is the best solution for Scotland and for the UK. I'm also struck by a lot of the comments that Nicola's been making, the observations which, you know, as a journalist watching a lot of my colleagues, a lot of political players get involved in what's a very, very uh, kind of black and white, technicolor debate about what's right and what's wrong, giving us some fairly useful, calming messages that actually a lot of this is just going to be worked out and we'll get on fine is actually quite useful to know. What I'm not any closer to knowing really is whether or not the Scotland is going to vote yes or no, because I think we're going to have to wait for a couple of years on that. But can I just uh, invite you to thank the panellists for what I think has been a terrifically engaging and involving and useful debate. And, and thank you too for your questions. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.